Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you part one of our five-part series on the Palmyra Murders. In the summer of 1974, seven yachts converged on a remote uninhabited island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with the same idea, to live alone in a private paradise. Instead, they found each other, and (laughs) the summer ended in a brutal double murder. Oh, man. Okay. This episode, we talk hippies, federal drug trafficking, and probably one of the top 10 most chaotic ocean voyages of all time. Uh, Muppets at Sea, we <laughs> shall be triggering Nick's thalassophobia. What's thalassophobia? It's fear of things in the deep, dark ocean waters. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> if and you I, know about us, you know about Nick's thing with I'm whales. I'm very scared right? of whales. <laughs> whales are horrifying to me. And okay, so this is exciting because what you just read surprised me. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. But the th- all, thing that I also know to be true is that this true crime i believe is the true crime that sparked our imaginations and our hearts to want to make this podcast at all right i think like 5 years ago or something like that i our love life, this pair i think it's less of that i think it was like 3 years ago no i listened to them and remember that oh, okay so you know my brain i can't remember anything but i can remember a it's podcast. all the deep dark sea with crazy creatures floating around in there i listened to this on true crime brewery yeah. which is just one of my favorite true crime podcasts yeah. it's just this husband and wife they're much older they're vegan they like dogs and they just <laughs> uh they do a podcast it's really funny to me and the um the guy and the couple gets to review a beer uh, uh-huh. before every episode and it feels like a concession like he's like I'll do this true crime podcast with you uh-huh. but I get to talk about the foamy rich head of the Alaskan amber <laughs> whatever you want to talk about <laughs> and you're like sign me up foamy rich head I just love them uh-huh. anyway I yeah. first heard this on uh, on that podcast this series is also based on the excellent book and the Sea Will Tell by Vincent Bugliosi. Yeah. It's so good. It's a thousand pages, but really it does fly by. So. <laughs> but it's an awesome book. Check it out. Very good. Uh, this is great. Yeah, because I, re- I want to finish s- setting the stage a little bit. Oh, sorry. For people that are new to the podcast <laughs> and maybe don't know, the way that this whole thing started was during the pandemic, we were locked in our apartment together. And to get some space from each other, we started listening to podcasts. And I was like, what are you listening to? And Muriel was like, oh, true crime. And that was just so... Um, gross to me i was like why how what and i hated it and i even tried listening to it and it made me feel gross but then she would tell me her version of what she was listening to and it was so fun and so engaging i was like maybe this is a podcast right and this is the first crime that you ever told me about so i remember bits and pieces of it and now i'm excited to relearn it because i forget everything anyways yeah you know yeah, I mean? yeah 
that's my you know deep dark sea with crazy creatures floating around you know <laughs> it's all a blur it's all a party in there i don't know hey but for real though the party does continue over at patreon.com slash muriel's murders what a great segue we've got three episodes coming out every month uh that are only available on patreon two of them are true crime and one of them is just the two of us hanging out so if your favorite parts of the episode are when we kind of like uh you know just banter before the crime gets started boom great reason to sign up for the patreon you get an hour <laughs> of that a month and we've got Marin S who just signed up plus we've got Scott W and Pamela Z who recently increased their monthly pledges and we've got a beautiful community of people who stay signed up month after month and sometimes they have to update their credit card information which is super annoying but they do it anyways and they continue to support this podcast thank you to everyone who is a Patreon member yes thank you okay listen this is a true story involving Murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, go listen to a different podcast. Plus, we're going to joke and it's probably swear words are going to happen. So if you hate that, no hard feelings. Uh, you know, don't let the screen door hit you on the ass on your way out or whatever people say. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, Nikki. Uh, are you ready to hear the story again? No. Okay, let's get started. All right, it's 1974 in Oahu, Hawaii. That's right, Nick. This story <laughs> yes. takes a lot of part in Hawaii. Well, it's a treat for me. I live there. I love Oahu. And I, you know, miss the 70s, but I feel like that's my spirit animal decade, you know? You know, I completely agree with you. I've never been to Hawaii, so if you hear me mispronouncing things, go ahead and... Tell me. <laughs> All right. Don is breaking over the Alawai Boat Harbor, the largest yacht harbor in Hawaii. And just to say, here we're not talking about the mega yachts of Rick Ross or perhaps Little Yachty. <laughs> <laughs> Little Yachty does have some big yachts. We're talking more about... <laughs> I was going to do this whole bit where I was going to quote a bunch of Rick Ross, but I didn't. Okay. Uh, we're talking more about painstakingly maintained sailboats, Lamborghinis of the sea, boats that require things like jibs and dinghies and your starboards, keels, tacking, and so forth. That sounded like a little bit of a little yachty verse just right there. Yeah. And surrounding these yachts is a mystifying subculture that is simultaneously luxurious and dangerous, complicated, exhilarating, perhaps baffling to the non-yachting among us. <laughs> If it's not apparent already, uh -huh. I know nothing about boats. <laughs> but this is unhinged already. The story gave me a deep respect for those yachties out there yanking on ropes, slicing through thousands of miles of open water, battling an ocean that pretty much wants to kill you and then grind your bones into sand. <laughs> and remember, uh-huh. As much as the water and the boat and the wind are megastars of this yachting world, there's also another crucial component. Yes. The people. 
a wide spectrum of boat people, those who have generations of boating in their blue blood, or like the Steely Dan blasting weekend warriors. You've got the confused, the experts, the drunks, the adventurers, the irresponsible dreamers, the legends, the pirates, right? And for better or worse, they all belong to the same complicated social world, one that prizes unspoken rules, self-reliance, noble ethics, and bodhi words for things that already have words. <laughs> you know, like when you're driving to Ralph's to buy a can of beans, you turn right on the sparkling open ocean, you turn starboard. <laughs> <laughs> But to me, this is a story about a group of people on a remote island and the disintegration of the delicate ties that hold polite society together. We're going to open our story with the chaos and confusion of an early morning raid on a suspicious yacht. All right. So remember, October. Yeah. 1974. The sun is rising over the Alawai Harbor. Hundreds of small boats and yachts are bobbing peacefully in the water. But on shore, the energy is buzzing. At the Honolulu Yacht Club, a thin, tightly wound club member has been up into the wee hours of the morning staring daggers at a boat anchored way out in the yacht basin Mm -hmm. all alone. Mm -hmm. A freshly painted lavender and white 37-foot yacht, spots of her old blue paint showing through the sloppy paint job, no clever or meaningful name displayed on her hull, just blank white boards. Mm -hmm. So again, I want to (laughs) say... There are very significant elements to this story that if you know nothing about boats, you wouldn't care about it. Uh-huh. But like, this is a very suspicious boat. Yeah, it's super janky looking. This is the Honolulu Yacht Club. Well, and in particular, it doesn't have a name. That's like a very, oh. that is the thing, actually. Mostly, it just doesn't have a name. Okay. <laughs> it's a seven it's 74 most boats are kind of janky even like the rich people have kind of janky boats but if you don't have a name like something is really wrong with the situation well and if i can paint a maybe a better picture mm-hmm. the yacht itself is beautifully constructed but someone has gone in scraped the name off and sort of hastily repainted everything so oh, that's got, hilarious it's, so it's like you steal a car and then you put up like a, a cut out magazine letters and numbers on the license plate yeah. and then like take white out and suddenly the black car is white but it's like someone just used white out to like hide the identity of this car bingo we'll use cars that's what it is yes okay. so this tightly wound yacht club member leonard bernard had already called the FBI, who, like us... <laughs> Straight to the FBI? <laughs> like us, uh-huh. didn't understand the gravity of the situation. Uh-huh. So they deferred to the Coast Guard and said, okay, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't care. Could right? you call the FBI if you wanted to right now? Meaning you, Muriel, do you know how? Do people know how you to can call, call the, the FBI? FBI? You can call the FBI. You can call the FBI tip line. I don't know if they'd answer. I mean, this guy, it's the 70s. He called the FBI. The guy was like, what? No, <laughs> I'm not going to deal with a boat. There's like a million boats. <laughs> <laughs> the Coast Guard, however, was like, what? Boat? No name? We're there. Right. So Leonard Bernard waited for hours for this daring nighttime 
Coast Guard raid of this mystery boat. Instead, after waiting for hours, he got a disorganized daytime sting operation. So the piers and docks were thick with Coast Guard agents and yacht club looky-loos. So there's already the spot is blown up, basically. Uh-huh. And an annoyed FBI agent pushed his way through the crowd to just observe the raid of this unnamed <laughs> they abandoned. Sent someone down there. Right, of this unnamed abandoned uh-huh, mystery like boat. The intern. And in a flash, they think this is an abandoned boat. In a flash, a couple of hippies who had were thought to have escaped the unnamed boat sometime overnight actually popped up on the deck, got in their dinghy, and made a break for the shore, just hauling ass in this dinghy. Mm-hmm. So spotting the clusters of Coast Guard agents closing in on him, the hippie man stripped off his clothes, revealing a scattering of prison tattoos and tan muscles, and he dove into the harbor and disappeared. The hippie woman, now alone in the dinghy, just furiously starts rowing herself and a small fluffy dog to a far shore. The 40-foot Coast Guard cutter bore down on the woman, just carrying her dog like a football, scrambling over the rocky shore, and then over to a nearby hotel in full view of basically everyone standing on the piers. Well, that's what I'm getting at, because they're out in the water. Yeah. And all the law enforcement is on the shore, and they're like, we're going to run away to the shore. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds like they they did kind of get away. Well, the guy disappears... Uh, but the woman's plan is not so great. So she runs over to this hotel and it was there after months of the reality of yacht life, of clawing for survival on what was supposed to be an island paradise after sharks and poisoned fish, the death of dreams and the death of people. Stephanie Stearns was back on land, squatting on a patio behind a planter, right back in Hawaii where she started from. Mm. This is good, Muriel. This is good. You did good. Okay, good. Because I was like, I was like, I kind of got a little freaky writing this. And then I was like, man, I hope this makes sense. No, no. You you, you went off. You This is like absolutely like the opening to a movie or something. Like you're really like, <laughs> you know, you're throwing in some camera angles and there's all, all of that is happening. Opening scene. <laughs> And we're also going off on some tangents. We've already got a lot of bits in already. We're a little off the rails a little bit, but this is cooking. Okay, great. Cooking with maybe not gas, but something else that's flammable. Oil. <laughs> something you're not supposed to cook with. Stephanie Stearns was a flower child crashing on the rocks of the 70s, right? We're innocent. <laughs> we're dancing around. Everything's chill. Yeah. And then it kind of gets a little more, you know, bitter and druggy, <laughs> crash, crash, crash. And then we hit the 80s yeah. and it's Material Girl, right? Right. Okay. So she moved to Hawaii in the summer of 69, the most classic summer of the hippies of all time, mm-hmm. after graduating from junior college. And she had the romantic task in the summer of 69 of building a seaside resort on Oahu out of the original structures of a 16th century Hawaiian village. Amazing. So Stephanie's uncle, Buddy, bought the village in Honolulu and then painstakingly moved it just piece by piece across the mountains to his beachfront property on Kaneohe Bay. 
I want to say something also. I realized I had this pit of despair because in the beginning when you said, if I mispronounce anything, like tell you, you yeah. know, and I thought you were talking to our audience, you know, like send us a kindly worded email about how bad the pronunciation is. Uh, but then I realized you were asking me to do that. And it's like, I lived there for a year, but I can't, pr- I'm, I can't do anything. What? Part of that puts you in a bit of despair because I'm not. I can't be the fact checker. You oh, know what I thought I mean? you were sad that I didn't ask you. Okay. No, you did ask me, and I can't live up to that task at all. Well, you know, we'll see. No, I'm going to start mispronouncing Honolulu and just see what you do. <laughs> so there at the bay, Stephanie worked as a waitress and a book keeper for her uncle Mm -hmm. she was the baby of the family she's eight years younger than her straight-laced businessy older brother ted who thought of stephanie as some sort of gentle alien uh (laughs) the best they could do in terms of a bridge to understanding was a metaphor about rivers okay to her brother's frustration come hell or high water stephanie was gonna go with the flow and the flow led her sort of softly around Hawaii, dabbling in quaaludes, that classic 70s. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> yummy thing. They De- sound so great. I can't lie. <laughs> Developing a, a more serious relationship with smoke in the doobies. Uh, she was doing a little shoplifting. Nice. Her hair was bleaching in the sun uh-huh. and her skin catching a tan. And... In 1972, Stephanie was a 20-something open book with short, curly blonde hair, fully rolling with the current when she met Buck Walker. Uh Now, Dwayne Walker or Wesley Walker, he's under different names, uh, depending on where you look. Also, Buck? Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, He self-published a book under Wesley Walker, which we will talk about later in the uh, series. Very excited for a Uh, self-published book. But regardless, he went by the giant tattoo on his arm, which of course would be Buck. Oh, the word or like a beautiful image of a buck? No, no, no. Just the word, (laughs) which I, I mentioned this later, but I just think it's so funny that I don't think that people get their own name tattooed on their arm, do they? Am I not? Am I? That seems so weird to me. Yeah, no. I think you get other people's tattoos named like yeah. put on you, but to be like, you put a big he tattoo really of must your name. have hated his name, like Wesley or whatever it is. He must have just really been like, I don't want that anymore, so I just got this on me, and so no one can forget what to call me now. I don't think it tracks. All right. So Buck and Stephanie (laughs) were together from the night they met in the courtyard of an apartment complex filled with flowers. Mm -hmm. Buck was about 10 years older, a kind of tall, lanky Paul Newman type, especially when he had his teeth in. He was handsome. He was missing his two front teeth. So he had like a removable bridge. Classic. Um, But handsome, sharp blue eyes, a cleft chin covered in, you know, gnarly tattoos. So the two, they fell in love and moved into a cabin that Buck had built with his dad in Mountain View on the Big Island. Mm -hmm. So way up in the jungly mountains, this cabin was really more like a shack. It had no electricity, just an outhouse and a wood-burning stove. So (laughs) this is maybe a little personal. I've been thinking about this a lot lately about how some you and I've been talking about this, about Uh how sometimes there are kind of two versions of a life or family or relationship. The version that you 
identify with and then maybe the more objective version of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And how sometimes those versions of yourself or your life can be fairly different from each other, right? And I think Stephanie's story in particular really boils down to this gap in perspective, like in perception. (laughs) So on the one hand, Stephanie fell in love with a loving man and the simple life, making a little home way out in the mountains with hand-sewn decorations and secondhand furniture. They shared all their secrets. Buck came clean about his time in San Quentin, the prison for armed robbery, you know, explaining how he was just a kid and the gun wasn't even loaded, but he caught this sentence and da 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 And, you know, they talked about getting married and building this life together. And then, on the other hand were the get rich schemes and the drugs and the guns and like the spaghetti thrown against the wall, conflict resolution that couldn't get the past the uh, screaming and throwing rocks at Stephanie's van stage. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then there was like the open relationship on Buck's side only, very painful for Stephanie, but something Buck felt he couldn't live without after surviving those long sexless years in prison. Mm-hmm. Um So in this way, peaceful cabin life grew to include growing their own pot behind the cabin for funsies, right? A relatively harmless path for the river to take. And then peaceful cabin life bloated to include a huge crop of hundreds of plants behind the cabin. This time, a moneymaker, right? uh Then when Buck and Stephanie woke up to find the entire crop literally ripped out of the ground right before harvest. Peaceful cabin life then included a replant and then an extensive booby trap system involving live rounds of ammunition courtesy of Buck's rage. Wait, hold on. Ripped out meaning they got jacked. Really jacked. They got robbed. Like from the roots. Like the whole place. That is they hard. just ripped them out of the ground. That's hard. That's hard so then, Ruth, then Buck goes out and is like, rigs this crazy man system that will murder you. And Stephanie was like, what are you doing? Like what, strings attached to triggers of machine guns and stuff? Like li- whatever, live ammunition. Rounds. Damn. So she's dealing with that. Then cabin life start, started to include like a stockpile of guns and then a screaming throw rocks at the van style fight that ended in an agreement that the guns can stay but they have to be kept outside Mm -hmm. so there's this thing right this kind of like dual life happening where on one side you can call it yeah peaceful mountain living and hippies who like pot and then the other side is like get your guns out of the house (laughs) rocks 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 Crazy town, right? You know what? I, this um, this era in Honolulu really reminds me, maybe inaccurately, of Joan Didion and Hunter S. Thompson, sort of, you know, hanging out at that great hotel, the Royal Hawaiian. I think it's called. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Down on on Waikiki in Honolulu, and like just doing all types of drugs and drinking, not together. I don't think they hung out together, but they both just spent time there and did writing. Yeah. About it, Hunter S. Thompson has this great underrated book called The Curse of Lono. I think it's called, mm-hmm. and it's just like I think it was a, in this era. You know, it's like all whatever the deep sea creatures of you know, just floating around in my mind. And, but somehow I, when you said 74 Hawaii, I was like, Oh, Joan Didion and Hunter S Thompson. And then 
I can put that on these two individuals also a little bit. In particular, it's a very Hunter S. Thompson-y sort of situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the flow of their river eventually brought Buck and Stephanie careening into the parking lot of a JCPenney where Buck tried to sell a large quantity of MDA to an undercover cop and got busted with thousands of dollars worth of MDA and a nine millimeter handgun. MDA? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's it's a hallucinogenic, older gen hallucinogenic. So like MDMA. Okay. But what cool. it was called before that so they got somehow they got they were got into chemicals too because that's not a what is right it's like man uh-huh. we're all just hanging out right <laughs> yeah. and like it just goes to this right okay uh <clears throat> one thing we'll learn about buck is that he was one of those in particular those like convicts who super capitalized on free like the network of free convicts in the world so every time he left prison oh yeah immediately get into the most crazy thing yeah he just had a network of people that were like down yeah for his entire life since he was like a teenager till whatever that never stopped for him that's his most favorite thing okay so anyways he gets caught selling to an undercover right twice because they set him up they Uh met with him he sold something and then he got caught you know again doing it and then they caught him with all these drugs and a handgun, yeah. which is a big no-no for a convicted felon. And Stephanie, of course, drove down with him in the car. She was doing laundry at, at the laundromat like across the street when the bus went down. So they actually both caught federal drug trafficking charges. Mm. Something that Stephanie felt was really deeply unfair. Because, yeah, she's just running errands. Well, mostly because they tricked him. He was undercover. <laughs> There's something like very unethical about that. <laughs> that is a very funny hippie stand stand to take you know? you know that's what i'm saying Dude, this it's idea, not a crime you asked me for the drugs it's just this idea of like what you feel is happening versus what is happening mm-hmm. it's really interesting totally um and i don't even know if that's objective versus subjective but it is like you know you can get caught up in that real easy hell yeah <laughs> so this was bucks like we said second federal drug trafficking charge since leaving san quentin and with the weapons charge he was bound for some pretty heavy prison time and that left buck and stephanie with only one reasonable adult option hit the open seas run away and live on a deserted <laughs> island hell yeah So the search for an island began Uh at the public library. They wanted something in the Pacific Ocean, something absurdly obscure. No one could find it. Something uninhabited but still life-sustaining. A place where they could live off the land, spear fish, make coconut phones, and then also grow enough weed to make them rich once they got it back to the States. (laughs) So... (laughs) Not trying to like reinforce, he's just looking for a place to hide. Right. I mean, and again, one hand, beautiful life. Yeah. We're right. living. Other uh-huh. hand, I'm going to grow all this weed, but this time I don't need bullet ridden booby traps. Hilarious. The island would be what the cabin life should have been freedom, love, uncomplicated, pure living. And with that, Stephanie and Buck settled on Palmyra. 
deep in the ocean, there are chains of ancient underwater volcanoes called seamounts. They're these like massive, unseen mountain ranges. And way, way out in the Pacific Ocean over millions of years, one of these seamounts broke the surface of the water and then died. It went out, right? Stopped spewing volcanic lava Mm -hmm. and went dormant. Coral grew around this little volcanic island strong enough to form a barrier reef. And then over the years, the seamount sunk into the ocean. So the top of the coral died as it was pushed into the air by new healthy coral. And the reef grew strong enough to support trees and animals. And so this left basically a ring of flat land encircling a deep blue lagoon, a tiny slash of land in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And so this crown of coral sitting on the head of a dead volcano about a thousand miles south of Hawaii is the Palmyra Atoll. Whoa. So that's how those are formed. Yeah. That sounds like um, just the archetype of a weird deserted island. It is. But what's interesting about it is that there's no island. The island is underwater. So it's just a flat ring. And then the inside is basically the crater of the volcano. Like just a deep hole. Oh, I didn't understand the first explanation at all. <laughs> and so it's totally not an archetype of a deserted island. It's kind of the opposite. It's like a Cheerio floating in a bowl of milk. Whoa. Yeah, that's... Kind of rad. That's really cool. That seems like Lord of the Rings style um, Paradise Island or something. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really... They're really interesting. And, and they're mostly only in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. There's like a few hundred of them and they're mostly just out in the Pacific Ocean. A few hundred? Yeah. How big? They're not very big, and some of them you can't stay on. The Uh Palmyra Atoll is big enough that, like, it can support about 5,000 people, but it's, but not like, so everyone has a house. It's like you're living in bunkers and stuff like that. Yeah, right. Okay. I'll explain. I'll explain. Okay, okay, okay. But we understand the way it looks, right? I think so. Yeah. It's just like kind of a Cheerio in the middle of the ocean. And it's very flat because it's just a coral reef. And actually, there's only about two or three inches of soil. So it's like this really rich, you know, bird poop laden soil. Enough for palm trees to grow, like coconut trees. But really, it's just a how, coral How like, um, what's the depth of the ring? You know what I mean? Like, is it like one mile? Is it like five feet? I'm just imagining. It's bigger. It's uh-huh. on the bigger side. Like, you have to take a boat to go across it. I, I don't remember exactly how many miles it is. It's not like massive. Okay, you can here's see my one, question. one side to the other. Sorry. Imagine the Cheerio yeah. is a path, right? Not how long does it take to get around the whole circle of the Cheerio, but how long does it take you to get from like the outer edge of the Cheerio, which is all ocean on one side, to the inner edge of the Cheerio, which is just the inner circle. So it's a little bit of a hard question to answer because mm-hmm. technically what it is is a, the the Cheerio part uh-huh. consists of a bunch of little islets, like tiny little islands. And so they're all different sizes, kind oh. of connected by this reef. Okay. So it's not, it, it's a little hard to measure it. It's about four miles across. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So something like that, but I I don't really know 
if that's like ocean edge to ocean edge uh-huh. or if that's the width of the Cheerio. Do you know what I mean? I do know. Cause yeah. can you imagine living on a Cheerio that's like, even like, let's say huge in whatever that is circumference. I'm so dumb. I don't know the names of shapes or <laughs> geometry or algebra <laughs> or anything like the circumference, right? I'm making yeah, like yeah, the yeah. shape of a hula hoop yeah. is like, would be like, let's say that was like a hundred miles, but then the path itself is like five feet or something. Yeah. It's not that it's livable. You can you can be on it, you know, because if it was five feet, the ocean would just wash you away. But it's I guess basically that's true. <laughs> it's not like walking a tightrope. But it's <laughs> like, small. It's small. Yeah. Like the whole thing is about four miles across. Mm. So Palmyra was discovered pretty recently and on accident around the year eighteen hundred. It's so small and flat that it's incredibly easy to miss if you aren't looking for it, and then it creates this hazard, right? Because not only is it incredibly easy to miss, but it's surrounded by ancient razor sharp coral. Uh-huh. So all around the island is this submerged razor sharp coral, right? And the only way to get into like the lagoon, the juicy center, and uh-huh. then access the more tame beaches yeah. is through this tiny channel, this little gap in the coral where you can get through like through this the sea. I believe it's 20 feet across. So Whoa. it's really small. Uh-huh. And then that leads into this pristine lagoon. And then from there, you can access the string of islands that make up the livable land, which is so packed with this dense plant life that you can lose yourself in a matter of minutes. And you can't really make any headway without a machete. It's yeah. just dense. Right. The island has some human history. Now it's a wildlife sanctuary. At one point, it was a refueling station for Pan Am, which is kind of interesting. And then in, that's the airline of anybody, that famous airline where had sexy waitresses and you could smoke cigarettes and eat steak and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and apparently they made crash landing refuelings and at this cool atoll. Right. They made a, So they had enough of an airstrip? They had an airstrip. Damn. Yeah, a small one, but they had an airstrip on it. Uh-huh. And then in World War II, the U.S. military managed to pack Palmyra with 5,000 servicemen and women. So the remnants of that military action are still buried all around in the jungle, like bunkers and underground tunnels. Um, the airstrip is still there. Mm-hmm. There used to be people who'd vandalize it, so you'd find these old bullet-ridden jeeps and stuff like that. There's even an abandoned hospital way out in the woods. Ooh, creepy. Yeah. It sounds great. But it's nothing you can really see without hacking your way through the bushes. Uh-huh. By 1974, all the human residents were gone. The wildlife refuge hasn't been hadn't been established yet. And Buck and Stephanie had decided to make the thousand mile journey to their own private paradise. They must have some skills i mean thousand miles that might as well be like across the world that seems impossible one thousand miles right so i think at this point in the story probably not later but at this point in the story Mm -hmm. i just picture us trying to do this i know (laughs) i mean i I, so just keep that in your mind because whatever you're thinking is kind of what the reality was for them yeah so the first step Steal a boat? Find a boat. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So around January 1974, Buck and Stephanie found their yacht. 
The Margaret had spent a fair amount of time at the bottom of a harbor growing barnacles. When she was pulled from her watery grave, her mast was snapped off. So she just spent two years kind of chilling in traction until this starry-eyed young couple bought her for $400 as a dream restoration project. But after a ton of work, money, Frankenstein patch jobs and failures. The young couple was totally over it and then sold the Margaret to Buck and Stephanie in January of 1974. Uh Uh, They sold it for a little over $2,200, which was all the money that Buck and Stephanie had. So these two were absolutely tenacious. The Margaret was their lifeline to paradise, right? The only Mm -hmm. thing keeping Buck from going back to San Quentin, the key to their great love story. So Stephanie funded the restoration waiting tables while Buck... (laughs) What, awaiting their trial? Well, they're out on... Yeah, they're waiting. There's all of these like legal things that I'm not going to try. They're not even close to the trial. They have to like go plead and... Okay, sure. Okay, okay. So Buck is doing the restoration and I just picture it like a Homer Simpson montage of DIY repair. You know (laughs) what I'm talking about. It's like the birdhouse that fell down and killed the bird and then the freak show spice rack and the toaster that turned into a time machine (laughs) and like a fiddle dee dee. When he goes, fiddle dee dee, that will require a tetanus shot. I'm not going to swear, but I am going to kick this doghouse down. So I'm just picturing that. Okay. Uh-huh, great. Uh, <laughs> Buck worked tirelessly on the Margaret. He even bought a generator so he could work on her through the night. So he would just have lights up and just be working on this boat. I have a question for you. What? Is it weird for you to refer to a boat as a her or a she? You know, I just decided to embrace it. This book yeah. was a thousand pages. In the beginning, I was like, what is this? Well, people always do that. Even we were just watching, whatever, Kardashians on Hulu. You're supposed to you do it. You call your car a girl and there's like certain things are women well, and certain things are, you know, I just, I'm not like against it. Like I don't, I don't have like a stance that it's like whatever, but I just can't bring myself to naturally do it. It feels like it goes against my grain. Here's the thing about uh, this story and this world in particular yeah. is that it's not just a trend or a right. fun thing. It's like there's so many things about boating that are so serious <laughs> yeah. that like I just sound like I have no idea what people are talking about. And there is this inner world of like hospitality you know, and like what you should and shouldn't do, how you should and shouldn't approach each other. Yeah. What, like, I was reading this blog about this, you know, it was like a yachting blog. And this lady, her whole premise of the blog is like the the most dangerous thing on the water for yachters are other people, are other yachters who don't, aren't responsible. Like, you know. Oh, who are like going against the uh, norms of the, if how you, it works. If somebody moors their boat wrong or like ties their boat wrong to the uh-huh. dock and then something happens, they just smash into your boat. You know, like mm-hmm. every, you're, it's this weird thing where. It's like, if you don't refer to this boat as a she or a her, then we're all going to sink. Well, it's weird because some stuff seems like dumb or arbitrary, yeah. but it's all kind of connected. And some things that seem like they shouldn't matter when you realize, oh, this little thing that happened mm-hmm. happened in the middle of the ocean where there is no one there to help you. Right. The little mistakes 
end up being deadly. And so I think it's this attention to detail yeah. and these like particulars that it's just like a part of the culture. Totally. It's you know? like just a thicket of kitsch that you have to You're being mean into. about it. It's not a thicket of kitsch. It's like it's it's basically a hobby that is really complicated and really deadly yeah. and requires a lot of like specific language. Yeah. And then that just I think transfers over to other like things where you have to call certain boats things other words you know <laughs> sure okay. i mean if there's a, an intensity but once you start realizing what's on the line for yeah. some of that stuff you understand the intensity that's how i feel i okay and all of that i can accept and i will release any judgment i have for me personally calling anything a he or a she just feels bizarre but you're not a boat person I'm, man yep i'm not and i but i will let it go and so what we are right like uh-huh. we're a zero when it comes to boat people. And then a lot of people in the story are going to be a 10. And Buck and Stephanie want to be a 10. And they're kind of a zero. So uh-huh. we're going to watch them try to okay, find it. Okay? okay. Okay. So Buck, he's working tirelessly on the Margaret, right? Day and night. He didn't have a lot of experience working on a yacht per se. No experience. But he had at some point help his dad work on a couple of houseboats. Mm-hmm. So he and he had his trusty library cards so he could check out yacht books. Yeah. And plus, he knows how to build booby traps and have weed farms and stuff. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't really been that successful with either, but it's true. <laughs> uh-huh. So and what he lacked in knowledge, Buck made up for in confidence. Like when he realized a prefabricated replacement mast, right? The mast, the thing in the middle of the boat that's massive, that all the sails are tied to. Uh-huh. It's like your, yeah. really like your spine of your boat. Yeah, the telephone pole in the center of boats. <laughs> it was too expensive to buy one. Uh-huh. He freaking made one. He jerry-rigged a 40-foot mast out of two-by-six boards. And the Margaret was ready to rock. <laughs> So in April 1974, Buck and Stephanie had their very first sailboat. Buck had only done short little sailing stints, day sailing, and then Stephanie had done even less. So these were exciting times. They decided to launch the boat in a ceremony at Malia Bay in Maui. And actually, crowds of locals made their way down to the beach. They wanted to see this <laughs> phoenix of a boat yeah. rise again from the ashes. They if I like, saw some dude building a car for yeah. like two months and they and you know keep your, hey, how you doing out there? Cool, yeah. How's yeah. Going? No, it's not hot today, huh? Kind of start up a little relationship. It's like, yeah, I'm going to put some gas in it. Turn over the ignition. I would go out and watch. Yeah, now imagine that you've watched him pull that car out of a lake. Yeah. <laughs> like it was already jacked. <laughs> and not only that, you watched some other couple pull the car out of a lake, yeah. work on it for years, and then just be like, ah, this car sucks. And then you see another couple working on it. Yeah. And then he's like, I think I can drive it, you know? No, it's great. It's got a whole life. Yeah. So the Margaret's on this trailer, kind of hoisted up on these metal support beams. Stephanie stood curly-haired and sunny, grinning on deck with a bottle of sh- cheap sparkling wine to smash across the hole, you know. <laughs> Break the boat. <laughs> and sure, it was bad luck that they renamed the boat, but Buck and Stephanie liked the name Iola, which was a play on the phrase to life in okay. Hawaiian. Okay. So they went ahead and did it anyway. Why? 
you know, they're learning how to be boat people. And when you're Nick and Viral, you can just rename the boat. You don't care. <laughs> yeah, they don't know it's bad luck. The yet. level 10s are going, you are going down. <laughs> okay. And, you know, they had done okay. The Iola wasn't a looker, but she looked seaworthy enough. Her secondhand sails were stitched together, just sort of flapping in the breeze. <laughs> it felt like it was something that would work, right? Uh-huh. But unfortunately, in this moment, they learned their first major boating lesson. Buck had used the wrong type of rope to secure the Iola to its trailer. And instead of launching the Iola gracefully into the harbor, the rope stretched, the boat toppled over, sending Stephanie flying down the deck. And uh, when the panic of the moment cleared, Stephanie stood unhurt, but the Iola was brutally stabbed through the hole, murdered by two errant steel support beams. So there on the beach, Buck screamed (laughs) and then ran all the way back to the parking lot, got in his truck and peeled out. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That is is an event worthy of gathering around and watching. He just left Stephanie alone, stranded on the beach for all these people just holding this unbroken bottle of wine. Okay, so by May... That is very funny that the one thing that was supposed to break was the one thing that survived the ordeal. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. By May, uh, things were looking back on track, though, okay? Okay. The The Iola's vampire bite, her double stabbing, was patched. The supplies and provisions had been purchased, but a new unforeseen issue had arisen, Out of love and fearlessness, fully in the current of the river, Stephanie had written to her family about her new love and the drug charges and their sailing trip to this undisclosed tropical island in their stale boat with the DIY mast. (laughs) So upon receiving the letter, Stephanie's family immediately jumped on a plane (laughs) bound for Hawaii to bring her hippie ass home. Uh Stephanie's mom, Sunny... And her straight-laced brother, Ted, crashed Hawaii with nothing but a handwritten letter, an old address, and a photo of the scraggly Iola. They had flown to the big island first to find Stephanie and Buck's mountain shack empty. Then they went to Maui, where the skewering of the Iola had taken place in April. And then they talked to a few folks and finally found, you know, a place to look for them in Oahu. And the plan... You know, between Ted and Sonny was for everyone to just be chill. Mm -hmm. Sonny was armed with the conviction that Stephanie was an idiot. And Ted was armed with Buck's super long rap sheet. He had done some deep digging on Buck. Okay. Um, But they promised each other they wouldn't push too hard. They were trying to coax a stoned deer off the edge of a cliff. So no sudden movements. (laughs) It just absolutely sounds like... Uh, people game planning how to deal with a hippie. Yeah. It just really does. It does. And I can hear these tactics working on me. (laughs) (laughs) So Ted was actually shocked when after a few sweaty passes at the harbors in Oahu, among hundreds of boats, he pretty quickly came face to face with the Iola from the picture. Uh So Stephanie was confused to see her brother and her mom, but happy and breezy nonetheless. And the three of them were all just playing it super cool and decided they were just going to have a nice family dinner so they could all meet Buck, uh-huh, right? Right, uh-huh. 
So at the restaurant, good start. Buck had his front teeth in and he had a shirt on. But that was about the end of the pleasantries. He kind of sat silently while Stephanie just gushed about the trip and explained their plans <laughs> to her mother. Which, if you can imagine, I feel like I know what her face looked like. Who knows? I'm just imagining the the grandma and Gilmore girls or something. <laughs> just like, you know, or like, uh, you know, the mom from Arrested Development. Right. Just uh, Lucille just... Boring holes into your face. Um, so Stephanie, you know, she says, while the money her mother had sent was really helpful, like, thanks, mom. You <laughs> we know, can buy the rope we needed. She decided against buying a ship to shore radio and bought baking supplies instead mm-hmm. uh, because Buck said the radio was too expensive and they didn't want to talk to anybody on shore anyway. There was right. nobody they wanted to talk to. You realize also this means like the thing in a movie where somebody goes, Mayday, Mayday, and they call for the Coast Guard. That's the radio they would use. They have no radio. They have no radio. Also, is he just at this point realizing that their secret plan, as far as Stephanie concerns, is just public knowledge and she's just telling everyone about their secret plan? You know, I'm not sure. I think that it's very funny that, I mean, it's very telling that she just wrote that letter. And that is just talking about all the details in person. Yeah. I mean, does she not realize it's supposed to be secret? I think that she's just saying like, hey man, we're just doing stuff. I don't know like how complicated that is, but I also don't, it doesn't seem like at least from the book, Uh you know, you don't get this impression that Buck is angry with her. I think you get this impression mainly is like, it's really Buck doesn't feel like he wants to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. That's like his fundamental stance. Yeah. He's Buck. Yeah, man. He says it on his arm. Uh, So, and then (laughs) she starts talking into her mother. She starts talking about the upcoming drug charges right the elephant in the room and stephanie explained hey ma you know it's not like buck was selling heroin mda is just basically pot so the whole thing is totally blown out of proportion plus they tricked us (laughs) (laughs) and this is where it comes out that she just casually mentioned that prosecutors had offered to drop buck's second charge and the charge against stephanie if buck just agreed to plead guilty to one of the drug charges. Yeah. But Stephanie and Buck decided they just didn't want the hassle. So they were just going to skip Buck's court date altogether. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the plan was to stay on Palmyra, live off fish and coconuts for two or three years. And then after Buck proved he could keep his nose clean, he'd turn himself in and then hopefully get a lighter sentence for good behavior. <laughs> they didn't tell him about the pot farm. Okay. Thing. <laughs> so she's keeping that part secret. There's a lot of stuff she tells her mom and uh-huh. like, you know, that she feels is like, again, this dual reality, right? Like yeah, her she- thing of like, this is done. Like, this is exactly what we're doing. And this makes sense. Right. That's what she tells her mom. She doesn't tell her like, oh, I was arrested for shoplifting. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. I, you know, there's certain things she's not really saying. She is righteously indignant about being, you know, busted by these narcs. It's so funny. So in the end, straight laced Ted, brother Ted, he got one single win. Mm-hmm. He managed to convince Buck to at least show up for the court hearing right it was happening like the next day Uh so he convinced him to show up 
plead guilty to one of his charges and get Stephanie off. Because, you know, Buck would remain out on bail until the trial anyway, so it wasn't like they would lose the chance to run away if they still decided to sail into oblivion. They could still do it, yeah. but at least they could get Stephanie's charges dropped, That's right? That's a pretty good win. Does it happen? Yeah. Ted physically walked Buck to the courtroom, the, I think the next day or the day after, uh-huh. just physically walked him himself, ensuring his sister would at least be free of this federal drug trafficking charge that really was dumb and she shouldn't have. I'm having kept. warm big brother feelings right now. As a big brother, you know, I feel like I would try to make something like that happen too, or that thing's exactly specifically. That's a good big brother move. Yeah. I, I feel really, I'm having a little, I'm feeling a little warm and gooey from that. As a big sister uh-huh. in my family, <laughs> situation of being like, yeah, maybe you should take care of it. Yeah. And then being like, whatever. It's like, okay. <laughs> there's your life back psycho (laughs) anyway uh, so afterwards after this court hearing happens Mm -hmm. when they were alone with Stephanie Ted and Sonny took their very last shot Ted pulled out Buck's rap sheet you know grand theft auto burglary and robbery charges going back over a decade uh, a stint in an institution for the criminally insane like way much more than an armed robbery charge of a teenager with an unloaded gun uh-huh. but unfortunately buck had kind of already explained everything to stephanie so she was armed for this ambush you know the charges were trumped up buck had just pretended to be insane to get out of san quentin (laughs) why did ted have to be so judgy you Uh, know that's basically where it went sunny's message to her daughter was a little more simple and to the point she just straight up said i'm pretty sure you're going to die in the ocean (laughs) i just really have a strong feeling that you're gonna die your boat is like what the little rascals would do yeah (laughs) it's like girl sis you don't know how to do anything well she knows her daughter her daughter grew up in new york like in a in washington heights like Uh in like her she's like an upper middle class kid yeah and she knows for sure that stephanie does not know how to sail a boat like (laughs) she's like are we gonna just pretend like obviously you don't know how to sail a boat anyway no that is a very hilarious aspect to this whole plan is like the main thing that it all hinges on is something that you don't know how to do that will kill you right but as you can probably guess stephanie just took their worry as love. She thanked her family for dinner and she just kept on trucking. This is like a sketch character that you do. I, I like I like people who just are relentless. Yeah. On June 1st, 1974, at sunrise, Buck and Stephanie sailed away from Port Allen on Kauai, beginning their grand adventure, their very first attempt at blue water, open ocean sailing, 1,000 miles in about five to seven days. Horrifying. And that's what we'll pick up next episode. Uh, what's it called? My Thelonious Monk? What the hell is the, my fear called? 
<laughs> thalassophobia? Thalassophobia really just kicked in. So, really? Yeah. It's going to be a rough ride in the next episode. Uh-huh. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, so next episode, we'll talk about their journey. We said five to seven days on average. Took uh-huh. them 29 days. No. Oh, that's so scary. <laughs> yeah. Get ready, baby. <laughs> it's going to come get you. You know what you got to do? What? Hold on to your butt. Oh, fuck <laughs> you. Thank you so much for listening to part one. The rest of the parts are coming your way right now. Go go, press play. But definitely listen to the rest of this outro because the outros are awesome. Yeah, you know yeah. Because I mean? this is where I say, like, Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our apartment in Los Angeles, California. To help support the podcast and unlock exclusive episodes, you know what you can do. Go sign up for Patreon. Give us that money. Yes. Patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Boom. If you're enjoying this episode and you already know someone in your life who's going to really be into it, like a boating person or like a funny hippie person or whatever, just whoever you think is like, oh man, they need this, send this episode to them. Because that's, it, that counts for so much. It's really the best thing you guys can do is is to spread this podcast. We're trying to like quadruple this size of this <laughs> audience. You know what I mean? We want you guys. We're greedy. We want listeners. And it's amazing uh, when they come to us because someone in their life, uh, you know, loves them and loves us and wants us to hook up. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, man. Your support keeps us inspired and motivated. Other great ways to help the show include leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's been a while and we need a new one. <laughs> Uh, you can rate and follow us, do all kinds of weird stuff on Spotify. You can connect with us on social media. And we love hearing from you. We actually get a fair amount of people sending emails just with thoughts or suggestions yeah. or just like that they liked it. It really makes our day. So thank you for sending those. We appreciate it. Yes, for sure. Our DMs are open and you can email us. So find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode. Or you can visit our website muriel'smurders.com our music is by mario castellini you know him you love him follow him on instagram at castellini beats dude's hilarious and he's super talented and he looks just like nick it's, doppelgangers it's and they act weird. exactly the same it's, it is very weird there's lots of videos if you're wondering what nick looks like go look up mario <laughs> castellini beats all right everybody we'll see you in just a couple minutes bye <laughs>